Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say... en los diferentes estados. That was Destroy All Monsters by 647F. It's from their 2016 single of the same name, and then it's available on Apple Music. Welcome, everybody that's listening to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club, episode 46. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and in the passenger seat is... Hello, everyone. This is Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Once again, we're on the way to the drive-in. This is our third and final trip for the summer to the drive-in. Where exactly are we going, Rich? We are traveling back to July 30th, 1971, in the middle of summer in the incredibly hot El Paso, Texas. And we are headed to the Fiesta Drive-In, the original Fiesta Drive-In, we should probably add very quickly, the one on Mesa Street, that actually uh, played, shall we say, more traditional films. And tonight, we've got a great double feature lined up, something that the the Fiesta Drive-In was well known for at the time. A kaiju double feature, if you will. We're, we're gonna be catching Yogg, Monster from Space, better known now under its title, Space Amoeba. And then uh, the second feature, Destroy All Monsters, the Godzilla Monster Fest from uh, 1968. The Fiesta Drive-In, it existed for about 31 years. It opened on February 7th, 1950, and closed in 1981. Not really much to say about its 31-year history other than, you know, it was had a successful run. By 1981, drive-ins were starting to, to close, and it closed. However, the rights to the name were purchased by a new owner. It moved to Montana Avenue, 
It reopened on October 9th and became an adult drive-in theater, which I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know that existed. Yes, it plays triple X movies. It is still open in 2020, still playing, and I believe they've even gone digital now in all of its triple X high def glory. Believe it or not, there is one other adult drive-in theater in the U.S. We'll give a shout out to the Apache Drive-In in Tyler, Texas. From what I understand, they don't do like a regular projector. They have kind of more like a like a home projector that projects on a screen and in, in the back of a building. And believe it or not, it's it is considered a drive-in. I guess <laughs> drivers would probably should probably use caution before going to the Apache Drive-in, based on some things I've read online. But the Fiesta Drive-in is well known, but it's not playing Godzilla movies in 2020. Actually, if they did, I'm not sure I'd want to see that Godzilla movie. We're going to stay in 1971 tonight for a couple of great flicks. It's interesting that those are in Texas, and I guess seeing all that frolicking around on the big screen, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. Uh, You know, uh, I guess so. I guess so. Not going to be in high def, though, at the Apache Drive-In. Well, hey, did you notice we've got some new members on our Facebook group page? It's been busy over at Facebook. Yeah, yeah. so we we, we try to welcome them on that page, but let's uh, give them a hearty welcome here. We have Fabio Raymond, John Schultz, and Anthony Walker. Welcome to the Facebook group page. Indeed, welcome everyone. We invite you to join there and and join the conversation. Lots of good things people have been posting. We're not gonna actually talk about those here because we have got some other kinds of feedback this week, Rich. We've got some voicemails. First of all, our, our good friend, Jonathan Angarola. I know in your episode, we covered the blob, and I'm loving your, your drive-in themed uh, episodes. I think it's great. It's a great idea, great concept. Uh, you guys were talking about Steve McQueen, and I know it doesn't sound like you were, he necessarily resonates with you, which I do get. I think he's a, an acquired taste. But a couple films that I would recommend if you haven't seen them, you might take a different perspective, are... Um, Films like I don't think you guys have seen The Sand Pebbles, but you may have mentioned it. That's a great film. He does great work in that. Also, uh, Papillon, if you haven't seen that, also very good. And Junior Bonner, he did some work with Sam Peckinpah that I really enjoy, including The Getaway, Junior Bonner. And he's also fun in Towering Inferno. I don't know if I mentioned that. That's me and I have been going through a, going through a 1970s disaster film kick and Tony Inferno was the one we kicked it off with and kind of enjoy him in that. But yeah, so Sam Pebbles, Junior Bonner, and Papillon. If you haven't seen those, I would definitely recommend them. I know, even if you're not, you don't think you're a huge fan of uh, Steve McQueen, he's really strong in those. And it's a different take on McQueen. We think of McQueen as like super cool. Yeah, and he wasn't seem like a cool guy. <laughs> but uh, these are much more uh, vulnerable characters that he plays. And, in these films in some ways. Just wanted to touch on Mr. McQueen, or Stephen McQueen, I guess, as he was billed uh, in his first film in the blog. He was a 28-year-old, playing an 18-year-old. That's all I got for now. Thank you, Jonathan. So good to hear from you. Steve McQueen recommendations. Yeah, you know, a couple of people have commented on, we didn't give a lot of love, I guess, to Steve McQueen. I guess, you know, we didn't hate him, and I and I, I don't hate Steve McQueen. He's just not a, a go-to for me. But you mentioned some good movies. Um, the Sand Pebbles, 
I've been aware of that. I don't believe I've ever seen that, at least not in its entirety. I have been aware of Junior Bonner, and I know that I have never seen that movie. The Getaway, same thing, familiar with it, haven't seen it. Towering Inferno, I saw it many years ago. I know that that movie is in my future when we do uh, our, our disaster epic. I got a feeling that's probably gonna be one of Jeff's picks. But yeah, thank you for the recommendations on that. I, I uh, Or Stephen McQueen, perhaps, is what we should be calling us. He called himself in the blob. We also have a call from Steve Sullivan. Now, he's going to lead us into our next section. We've been promising for two previous meetings that we were going to share our memories of going to the drive-in. So Steve is going to kick us off with some memories of his drive-in experiences in Wisconsin. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Rich. This is Steve Sullivan calling in to talk about... Uh drive-ins in Wisconsin. I know I should have called last month, but uh, you forgot to remind me and I forgot. <laughs> anyway, uh, drive-ins in Wisconsin, the three that I remember uh, really well are the uh, the Lake Geneva drive-in, which was actually between Lake Geneva and Delavan, Wisconsin. I think it was called the Lake Geneva drive-in. We saw a triple feature there once that had Rambo 2, I think, is the second feature. The third feature was Taps and they actually managed to drop an entire reel out and just never went back. <laughs> they didn't go back. I didn't go back much either. I maybe saw another couple there. There was also a, a terrific drive-in theater in Kenosha called the Kino that was on the south side right near the, the Illinois border, not too far away from that, where the kids and I saw lots of films. And that, that just went out of business right uh, a couple of years ago, right when all the movies went digital and they couldn't upgrade, and that, that was kind of the last draw. It was very sad. But the, the best drive-in that we used to have that I went to was the Highway 41 drive-in, which was on 27th Street in Milwaukee, the south side of Milwaukee, very south. And it was a fourplex, and you had to drive under two of the screens to get into the fourplex, and then you could go even two on the right or the two on the left, depending upon what you were going to see, determined which way you would go. And it was a fabulous place to see movies. And with four screens, almost every week of the summer, there was something to see there. And it was a perfect thing to do when you took your kids when they were really small. It was a lot of fun. Loved that place. Sadly, it was sold, and I think it's an insurance office headquarters now. It's really... Very sad. That was a sad day. I had some great movie experiences there, including the uh, Brendan Fraser Mummy, where my six-year-old, five-year-old son said, It's a duck and mummy! <laughs> and also a memorable Mission Impossible in which it was so foggy, I had to make up the, the story in my head and was later disappointed when I saw the real story. Anyway, they were great drive-ins. Love them. They're all gone now. I know there are some more toward the center of the state, but uh, none really close to us except in McHenry, which is still an hour away. So there you go. Wisconsin Drive-In Memories. Have a great show. Bye. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate you sharing that and happy to hear from you anytime that you call. You know, I, I've been thinking about this kind of hard and I don't have any specific funny stories about going to the drive-in. That's kind of what I had in mind of trying to come up with. So this is going to be kind of generic and give you the overall picture of the drive-in experience in Enid, Oklahoma in the late 60s, early 70s. We actually had two drive-ins. We had the trail drive-in and the Enid drive-in. The trail generally would show 
legit Hollywood movies. Occasionally, they would show B pictures. I did see Godzilla, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. I think is what it was released at at the Trail Drive-In. But usually, it was bigger budget fare. For some odd reason, I remember seeing the original Airport there. That's one of my earliest memories, so I don't remember too much about it. But on the other side of town, the Enid Drive-In. That's where it was happening. That's where all the Hammer films played. That's where Dracula versus Frankenstein played. I don't know that they alternated weekly, but when they weren't playing the horror movies, they were playing those stewardess type movies that you mentioned. I remember distinctly seeing a trailer, must have been several times for a movie called When Women Had Tales. It always looked like a, a raunchy kind of adult movie uh, you know, cavemen humor. But the interesting thing about the Enid Drive-In is that it was adjacent to the Enid Speedway, where on Saturday nights they had stock car races. Occasionally, early in the movies, you'd hear rumbling in the background. It would eventually end because the movies went on longer than the stock car races. But the good thing about that was when you went to the stock car races, you could climb to the top of the grandstand and look over and watch what was playing on the drive-in. You couldn't hear it, of course, but it, it probably wouldn't surprise many of you. I was not and am not a big stock car racing fan. So I would often go to the top of the grandstand and watch the movie. That is where I would catch clips of movies such as When Women Had Tales. And more <laughs> often than not, I would see those kind of naked people romping around than I would see the monster movies. And luckily, my parents would take us to see the monster movies. Some just specific memories I have. We saw a trailer for Escape from the Planet of the Apes there. And I had not at that time seen any of the Planet of the Apes movies. And I was so excited. I wanted to go see it. And I remember my mom, she must have seen Beneath the Planet of the Apes because she said, well, I don't know how they can have another movie after how Beneath the Planet of the Apes ended. That's something I remember. I remember seeing, I don't know what movie we saw, but we saw the trailer for Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I may have told this story before, but I was all excited. I wanted to see it. And my father pulled me aside and had a talk and said, uh, you know, there are some people that don't want to be a male. They want to change to be a female. Do you really want to see a movie about that? And of course, what do I tell my dad? No, I don't. And that's the reason for many, many years I didn't see Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Dracula versus Frankenstein, like I said, I saw that there. I don't know how old I was, but you know, I didn't enjoy it way back then. And as many times as I've tried, I still don't enjoy it. So those are kind of experiences. I remember getting out of the car and going to the concession stand, going to the bathroom. But the concession stands always seemed to be these simple cement buildings. They weren't terribly fancy inside, not like the ads for the things we've been playing in our episodes. Very simple. When I got older and went to college, drive-ins were still open. And I don't ever remember going to the Enid after that. I think it had closed, but would go to the trail with my college friends. That's when there were antics, when you would get out of your car and you'd go back into the trees that outlined it and you'd talk and drink and fool around. And uh, at that point in being in college, you know, it was less about the movies and more about, like I say, the antics. So that was fun. I do also want to share my last drive-in experience was in Columbia, Missouri, when I was at, at, college, at college. I convinced a girl to go with me to see The Beast Within. 
and we drove from Fulton to Missouri to Columbia and saw that at the drive-in. That was my final experience going to a drive-in. I've been, you know, in recent years with resurgence and with some that have remained open, but that's when my drive-in era ended. What about you? Tell me you've got a, an exciting, naughty story. <laughs> I do a little bit, but uh, yeah, you've got such cool experiences. I. I wanted to go to the drive-in as a kid. My mom and dad were not drive-in people. Living in, in Newton, Kansas, we did have, for as small as we were, we had the Westview Drive-In, and it was right off of Meridian, which was not a main drag, but it was kind of one of the main roads in Newton. And, you know, occasionally, if we were going to down around that area, uh, I remember, there was a restaurant or something there that went through a variety of different names, the Sirloin Stockade, the big, big plastic cow in the front of it. And, and we would go late enough, then the movies would start. And I always, you know, would say, let's go, let's go, let's go. And they would just never want to go. The Westview uh, closed in 84 and it sat, you know, the screen was there for quite a while and it was just this reminder of what I always wanted to see and never got a chance to see. It's a storage unit facility now. There's no remnants of the drive-in whatsoever. I didn't have my my first experience until August of 86, two weeks before I'm going into college. I saw Howard the Duck. I saw it at the the Landmark Twin drive-in. That drive-in opened in 1953 and it is still open today. Uh, it was the Rainbow Drive-In, then it became the Landmark Drive-In in 74. In 98, it became the Starlight Drive-In. And I think I might have mentioned this before. That drive-in, it was it closed in the fall of, two, of uh, 2018, but then ended up reopening in 2019 under new ownership. The uh, longtime owner gave it, essentially almost willed it to somebody who ended up not being who they represented themselves to be. And, and there was all sorts of unscrupulous things after several years and money being exchanged. And thankfully someone came along as he was attempting to sell it to a freight company, all sorts of bad press. The freight company said, we don't want anything to do with that. And somebody came in and, and saved the drive-in. And so they are, they're still open and they're open this year. For me, seeing Howard the Duck in August of 86, Yes, there was alcohol involved. It was a rainy night and rather cool for August. We went in a pickup truck, as, as you did back then, right? You could all pile in the back of a pickup, and none of us died. We were actually, it was so wet, we were like hiding underneath the truck so as to not get wet. I ended up almost catching hypothermia that night in August of all times, but I ended up having, having this fevered, Howard the Duck probably started that, a talking duck on the big screen and alcohol and I'm cold and I end up having this crazy incident where I'm like stopping at a rest stop and I'm tearing out trees out of the roots of the ground, little baby trees. I was in this crazy, crazy zone. Um, (laughs) I enjoyed my driving experience (laughs) until things got out of control. And I didn't go back to a drive-in again until 92. Same they wouldn't drive-in. let you back. They wouldn't let me back. Same drive-in theater, though. 
saw Alien 3 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I remember, and went to that theater numerous times uh, with uh, as we eventually had kids. And because uh, I don't think when we saw that, 92, I think we did have Kayla. I think Kayla was had just been born. So she was a little baby in the back seat. But we went a few times over the years with the kids as they got older and stuff. Um, yeah, I haven't really gone to the drive-in that many times over the years, sometimes with the kids, but all of my experiences have been pretty tame compared to Howard the Duck. <laughs> that was an odd night. That was an odd night. You've got some crazy stories you've shared from your rebellious youth. See, it's because your parents didn't let you see those monster movies in your formative years, and you were you had time to make up for Absolutely. I mean, if it was a 1980s slasher movie, I saw it downstairs in my room on my black and white TV, twisting the dial to get the scrambled HBO image to come in clear because I, I wasn't 17 yet and I couldn't see R-rated films. I love my mom and dad dearly, but yeah, they definitely sheltered me from a lot of stuff. If they only knew a fraction of what I actually did, I do want to say, and I, I should have mentioned it if you'll allow me one more minute, the Trail Drive-In Theater in Enid, they are currently doing a fundraiser to try to reopen it. There is a couple from Vance Air Force Base. I'm going to read real quick from, uh, if you go to savethedrivein.com slash Enid, a gentleman named Tony Whedon. I live in Enid and I'm passionate about solving real world problems. When I came to Vance 16 years ago for pilot training, I wanted the drive-in reopened. And now with COVID, it just makes sense. I've spoken with numerous Enid residents about this and Enid wants this. Please consider pitching in. So with your support, I'm gonna put a link in the show notes and if anyone feels like contributing to the trail drive-in, they are only at 12% of their fundraising goal. And I can tell you as someone that lives there, or lived there for many, many years, Enid, in my opinion, needs this. It, it would be fantastic for them to have a drive-in. And the whole kicker is, They've got a business plan where it's going to be a nonprofit. Look into that. There's lots of articles that have been in the Enid Daily News about that and, and check out that website. Thank you for letting me make that. No, I think, I think that's awesome. I, I want to ask you a question related to drive-ins and, and not a side. This is not a tangent, mm-hmm. but it's related. What are your thoughts on, on the Walmart? Uh, I knew you were going to bring that up. You know, I think it's ridiculous. I have no positive thoughts about that. I don't have negative, I just don't have positive. And probably it has more to do with the movies they're showing. I mean, you know, when Goonies is the number one movie in the country, and by the way, when you see that headline, look further and see how much it makes. When no movies are making any money, number one could be $5. I just don't see the reason for it. I. I don't know. I don't have anything else to say. It's taken away money from theaters that are struggling. And I'm sorry, Walmart's not struggling. They are thriving. No matter what they want to tell me, they're thriving in in this pandemic because people are still shopping there. When things were shut down, Walmart was one of the few businesses still open because they were essential. They're doing quite well for themselves. We go to the the Walmart here in Shawnee that's just minutes away. And when we go pick up groceries there, there is always two or three other cars, no matter what time we go getting groceries. They're doing good. And I just don't understand the logic behind 
you know, first off, why they're doing this, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a promotion for them is really what it is, which is not needed. It is potentially taking money away from local theaters and the, and the movies they're selecting, you know, I get it. The studios are really restricting what movies are going out to movie theaters, which I think is asinine because the movie studios should be helping the movie theaters by giving them some things that might really draw people into the theater. When you look at like what theaters are open here in Kansas City and they're all showing the Goonies, to me, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Goonies is a great movie, but is that all? I mean, that and Ghostbusters and I don't know. It's just to me that the, you know, Dirty Dancing is like, these are great films, but these are the same ones that always seem to kind of pop up. And when I see like here in, in the Kansas City area, I think there's what, four Walmart locations that are doing the drive and there's Olathe, there's Lawrence, there's Topeka and Gardner which is just south of, of Kansas City. Every single one of them, they're playing different movies on the second night, but the first night, all of them are playing Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why Kansas is getting the Wizard of Oz. Great movie, classic. Is that the only classic movie you know that they can pull out? I don't know, there's just, to me, there's just so much opportunity that that's being wasted. In, in the movies that are being offered up. And I just, Walmart's decision to do this just seems like it's a money grab. I, actually, one of the funniest lines I saw, somebody said, you know, it's like, I don't want to go to Walmart and hang out with those people in the first place. Why would I want to go hang out in the parking lot with them and watch the movie? Maybe a little harsh, and, and I'm sure maybe families might find it entertaining. Maybe here in Kansas City, we've got a couple drive-in theaters. I get it. People down in, in Olathe or Gardner, there isn't any theater really super close to them. Still, it just seems it seems like a money grab. And, you know, for that matter, even the real drive-ins that are opening, I'm disappointed with their movie choices. My, my daughter texted me last night. She has never been to the drive-in, and I have told her, I am taking you to the drive-in. Before I die, I'm taking you to the drive-in. <laughs> And so she always texts me and tells me what's playing. And at one of the drive-ins up here in Minneapolis, E.T., and at the other double feature, Goonies and Gremlins. So like you said, those are great movies, but I, and, and, well, and, I, I'm not going around. But you know, my response to her, when is there gonna be an all-night horror marathon? That's the kind of thing I wanted to drive in. And if Walmart was doing that at the parking lot, I'd be their number one supporter. The other thing I wanna say about Walmart is, I only go there for one reason. Used to be two when they had the 100-page giant comics from DC. Yeah. I would go to Walmart. The other thing is they have this wonderful zero calories, zero sugar, zero everything water with these wonderful flavors. If I can find any other place that can duplicate that water, and maybe I just don't know where it is. If you guys have ideas, let me know. But if I can find that, I won't ever have to go to Walmart again. And since I'm not spending any time in Enid anymore, I may never have to step foot in Walmart again. That wouldn't be a bad thing. We, we limit our Walmart trips quite a bit. We, there's just a few things from grocery stores. It's just cheaper to do it at Walmart. We can't get it at Aldi's and price chopper can be a little pricey, but we limit what we can't get here. We can't get there. We'll, we'll get there. And 
you know, I used to love to go into Walmart and, and look at their movie selection and DVDs because it used to be so big and vast and they've just, they've cut it back, physical media, that's a whole nother ramp we won't go on, but they've really cut it back. You're right, the 100 page comics, that was a kind of a surefire way to see what they've got and now that they're not doing that anymore, boneheaded move DC <laughs> Comics. And many, many other boneheaded moves. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I'm sorry, don't blame it on the pandemic because that DC was having problems before the virus broke out. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Yeah, Walmart is just an experience that if you can avoid it, avoid it. And I, the only thing that would get me would be let's show some horror movies. But I looked at the movies selected, it's like nothing's going to draw me. Nothing's going to draw me to, to any of those locations to, to see a movie. This section of the Classic Horse Club podcast brought to you by Walmart, your neighborhood, whatever. Hey, the drive-in is up ahead. And you know what? The last couple of weeks, I haven't been completely happy with our parking spot because I can't do two things at once. I can't drive and talk. So I'm going to focus on finding us a good spot. While we're pulling in, you want to play around on the radio, see if you can find us something to hear. Sounds good. Let me let me see what I can fine tune in. Our planet may be doomed, our earth devastated, the monsters are in revolt, and civilization is in chaos. Godzilla is laying waste to New York, Rodan is attacking Moscow, Manda is smashing London, and Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. Our battle cry must be, destroy all monsters. Monster, monster. Who can say which country or city will be next? We must unite and destroy all monsters. Is there a way to defend against Godzilla, Rodan, Manda, and Mothra? The answer is no. Let our battle cry be, destroy all monsters. Be prepared. See for yourself, in color from American International. Destroy all monsters. Monster, 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 monster. This picture is rated G for general audiences. Destroy all monsters. Monster, 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 monster. folks and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater we have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family did you fail to dress up for tonight's show no tie an old shirt and slacks a house dress well don't give it a thought we're glad you came as you are we just want you to enjoy yourselves don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time you love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm -hmm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop, Go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. 
Your attention, please. All new hotshot electric in-car heaters have been installed for your comfort and convenience. Just insert heater through car window and turn on the switch. When leaving, please turn switch off and replace on speaker post. Warning, high voltage. For your own safety, do not attempt to repair or remove wires. Do not attempt to open heater unit. If you need assistance, please notify the theater box office or concession manager. starts in one minute oh man richard i love that that was awesome uh, let's can you kind of summarize it for everyone tell us tell us about the intricate plot of destroy all monsters <laughs> the intricate plot indeed all right destroy all monsters the big giant monster fest this movie was made in 68 and it took place in the far far futuristic world of 1999 this is when we had did you know we had a base on the moon? Did you know we had rocket bases on Earth? Did you know we had monsters that lived on Monsterland? I always heard it called Monster Island, but it's actually Monsterland. At least as they, they talk about it in the, in the movie. The monsters are all living happily ever after. And let's do a monster roll call real quick so we know which monsters are living on Monsterland. We have the king of the monsters, Godzilla. We have Mothra in larva form. We have Rodan, we have Angerus, who previously was seen in Godzilla Raids again and technically died in that movie, but somehow was miraculously revived. A couple, whether it's Spiga or Spiga or Kamanga, Kamanga is the name that I usually hear the, the spider creature called, from Son of Godzilla. Again, he was killed in that movie, I thought, but guess what? He's back. We've got Baragon from Frankenstein Conquers the World. Again, I thought he was killed in that movie. Gorosaurus from King Kong Escapes. Uh, again, killed in that movie. A lot of, lot of you know, revivals here. I have a We've theory got, about that, which I'll share later. Ah, a theory. Okay. So we have Manda from Atragon with a few tweaks. We'll talk about that. We have... Varan, the unbelievable, definitely tweaked from the first appearance, which we'll talk about that as well. And I guess we probably have to mention that there's <sighs> Minya living on the island as well. Not a fan. Not a fan of little Tadzilla. And of course, the big, big monster not living on the island, King Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. I have always loved Ghidorah. You forgot one. This is not one living on the island, but Ghidorah wasn't living on the island either, and you mentioned it. So we have to mention the burning monster or the fire dragon. Oh, the fire dragon at the end. Yes, yes. So, okay, good. I stand corrected. Yes, that we had one more. That sinks with my list, so continue with the plot. We have aliens from the planet Kilak, and uh, this is a small planet moving between Mars and Jupiter. They are implanting control devices in the necks of the monsters and are going to control the monsters. The mar monsters escape. They end up wreaking havoc all over the world. 
We've got Godzilla attacking New York. We've got Rodan attacking Moscow. Mothra is doing what Mothra can do in larva form, attacking poor Beijing. Gorosaurus is in Paris. Manda is in London. Eventually, of course, as they're wreaking havoc all over the world, uh, the big question is, can the crew of the rocket ship SY-3 foil the Kelax plans before time runs out on the human race? That is a pretty succinct and surprisingly complete synopsis. (laughs) So my theory about all these monsters that appeared, this was made in 68, like you said. It takes place in 99. All of these monsters that were dead are now living with no mention of their death. Well, between 68 and 99, think of the stories that have not been told. Think of the movie or movies that resurrected these monsters and explains why they are alive. This movie of the show era is the only one that takes place basically that far in the future because everything else is kind of thought to be in, in modern times. I don't think there's any movie that's really approached as being in the future future, not far future anyway. I mean, I know we have, obviously it's futuristic, right? We have space aliens and such, and we're traveling a lot more than we, we normally would. But when you come down to Earth, Earth is looking normal in these films for the most part. This is the only one that I think was really set in the far future. We don't even know how really all these monsters were gathered together and how they were even brought to the island. It's We just know that this is where they've gathered. And on Monster, I, I want to say Monster Island because I think one yeah. of the titles was Godzilla on Monster Island, I think was well, one of the Well, that's what movies. it's known as in movies after this, but in this one, apparently they called it Monster Land. Yeah, I'm going to call it Monster Island because I want you to. You call it what you want to. I'm going to. Obviously, they were revived somehow. There were some tweaks to a couple of the monsters that were done more so out of necessity. For example, Manda, the Matragon, does look a little different. And that's because Manda's look originally looked an awful lot like Ghidorah. Or Ghidorah, sorry. And they had to kind of change it a little bit so that people wouldn't get confused and think Manda was actually somehow related to, to King Ghidorah. Varan, unfortunately, what we see in this movie apparently was a puppet and is seen more from a distance. That's because the suit, which I think, I don't know, Varan was, what, late 50s? Was that 59 or 60-ish? It's black and white. So it wasn't in the color color films yet. I'm trying to remember when. I want to say 58. So in the, in the decade since, apparently the Varan suit hadn't been used. It had been in storage. And, well, it was not in good condition. It was not going to look good on the screen. They didn't have time to fix it or to make a brand new suit. So they, they come up with a puppet. Varan doesn't get a lot to do. And it was supposedly going to have a bigger role in the movie. But out of necessity gets relegated to being really almost a cameo in this film. He doesn't get a lot to do. These suits, obviously, Godzilla's suit would get changed quite a bit. I mean, Godzilla's look almost changes in in about every movie to one degree or another. So they were constantly fixing the suit, changing the suit, making, you know, improvements on it. And some of these other monsters as well, if they were being used, they were kept in working condition. Varen had been sitting in storage for a decade and, and didn't wear well and then fallen kind of apart. Rubber d- it tends to do that. 
without being taken care of properly. Not a surprise, but a little disappointing we don't get to see. Baron is always a monster that I feel has gotten the kind of the, the short end of the stick. If you don't mind, I kind of need to uh, set the stage for where I'm at with all these different monsters. Uh, of course, I've seen Godzilla many, many times, and I've sort of cherry-picked other ones that I've seen, Mothra. I have never watched from beginning to end. I have not seen recently the movies that led up to this one. So what I'm saying is some of these monsters were not terribly familiar to me. This is the first time in my adult life I remember Manda, and boy, do I like that. That was such a cool scene, that snake wrapped around the, it was a bridge, and then it squeezed, and the bridge collapsed. That was awesome. I really liked Manda. Gororosaurus? I don't, I'm not familiar with that character. Uh, it's been a long time since I saw King Kong Escapes. So it, it was so much fun for me to sort of meet these new characters. I, I had heard of Kamanga. I didn't remember the last time I saw. So it, it, that was a lot of fun for me. I, I want to add on to uh, the roll call that this was, movie was the final appearance for several of these monsters, Mothra, Gorosaurus, Rodan, and Varan, this is the last time they appeared in the Showa era, which is interesting because we've got several movies after this. This was the ninth movie in the series, and we go up to 15. Like you said earlier, I guess the 70s, we started getting a little crazy, and they were bringing new monsters versus uh, some of these old ones from earlier. Yeah, the 70s is an interesting era, The that the last part of the Showa era, yeah, you, you've got Gigan and Megalon and, and Jet Jaguar. Um, a little bit off the rails. You know, this is the era, and I'm, I don't know, I can't remember which movie it is, but where Godzilla actually talks, that's painful. It was around this time, too, that Godzilla does the little Irish jig dance where he jumps up and <laughs> that... Last night, Carla and I watched a video on YouTube that chronicled all the different looks of Godzilla because she had a problem with the look of Godzilla in this one. This is the friendly look for Godzilla. And she says, why? Godzilla looks too goofy. I said, well, he doesn't always look that way. And so I found a video. And of course, she loves the look of, of, of Gojira and Godzilla raids again. And of course, you know, gradually Godzilla gets a little more friendly, a little more friendly. And then we enter that era. And when that clip comes on, of course, they show that of Godzilla jumping up and down and doing this little dance and putting his arms. And she's like, what is going on? And then the scene they showed where Godzilla is like flying on his tail as he's zooming across. She is shaking her head and she says, I don't know about this. And I said, you're going to enjoy the early films. I said, I might lose you somewhere along the way. But I said, you will enjoy the early ones. Then they kind of started pulling back a little bit. And by the 80s, Godzilla was looking mean and more Godzilla-like again. But there's been so many different looks to Godzilla over the years that this era is the friendly Godzilla era. And the movies are not up to where we were in the 50s or 60s. They're fun, certainly, but... Some of them can be a little bit uh, a little bit trickier to to work their way through. For example, Godzilla's Revenge, as I've said, is not my favorite movie in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not a big fan of Tadzilla. However, <laughs> Son of Godzilla, I love the Kamanga in that, and I love the music 
that when when they're in the jungle sequence, that music, man, Akira Fukube just he just does some amazing music in these movies. He just he makes the monster sometimes, no matter how you know goofy the monster may look, you know the the and some of them do. We have to admit some of them are amazing. Some of them are a little bit goofier, but that music will will cover up a world of sins on the big screen because his music is just amazing. And it's um, great here. I, I love the the little the usage of the Godzilla theme throughout it. it it's a great score. There's just there's certain music that just it just always makes you happy. You know the march, the march music is just like it's it just immediate images of of the Tokyo landscape and Godzilla and the little wind up, you know, army vehicles going across the landscape. I love that. You know, I, to me, I get it. People, some people, this is too cheesy for them. You know, they just can't get into it. I think these movies are greatly enhanced by watching them in their original Japanese language with subtitles because dubbing can, can make these movies just Sometimes laughable. I have a question for you. I assume you watched this on the Criterion set. We watched it at the Fiesta Drive-In, didn't we? Oh, sorry. <laughs> when you've seen it in the, the in the past, in the in the future, when you've seen it, <laughs> yes, home, yes, I saw it. Yeah, the Criterion so set. I have yeah. suddenly become the old man that can't do technology. Side note: I cannot, for the life of me, sign into Shutter for some reason. It wants me to do this and reset the password and all that, and it never sends me an email. Was the original Subtitled version on the Criterion set? I'm glad you brought that up. I find the Criterion language subtitle options difficult to navigate. To me, it's like when you when you have the one menu and you highlight something, it's in black. But then when you go to the audio options, your selection actually is not in black. It's like the opposite of what it's supposed to be because I selected what I thought was Japanese and all of a sudden they're talking and I'm like, wait a minute. I, I don't know if that's an error with this set. I don't know if that's the way Criterion does it. I think it's the way Criterion does it because I've experienced that before. It seems like it's, you know, I don't know if that's just an option that they, they've chosen, why they've done that. I don't know. Mm. If they, well, the English language is there, but I don't know which English language version is there. There is an English language version. Which one did you watch? I watched the Japanese version. Oh, on the Criterion. Okay, yes. so yeah, I, I did that. I thought I had selected, and then the beginning was narration. I don't know, for some odd reason, I thought, well, maybe the narration is in English, even on the subtitled version. But then when it, it got started, uh, so I went back in, I thought it was on the subtitle, like you said, but I didn't try the other one. So darn it. Well, I'm going to just have to watch it again. And that's fine because I loved it. My understanding is that every movie on this set is in Japanese with subtitles. Some of the movies, not all, have the, the English dub. I can't remember which ones do and which ones don't. That was the one negative comment that I remember people saying is that there should have been English dubs for all of these. And I think like on the upcoming Gamera set, I think it's the same thing. I think, you know, because the Gamera movies came out with different titles and with English dubs. And I don't, I think some of them are included, but not all of them. And a lot of those Gamera movies are public domain, whereas the Japanese or the Godzilla films aren't. 
and it may be just be rights issues. Criterion may have decided that getting the rights to the English dubbed version might have been, you know, too costly or just not worth the effort. I, I don't know though. I haven't heard the reason why not every single one is available that way. But it, yes, it was available for Destroy All Monsters. You mentioned I just don't know which version because there's multiple, uh, you know, yeah. multiple dubbed versions. You mentioned a, a change in look for Godzilla. So I kind of wonder, again, I have not seen the ones immediately after that, but the ones I have, like Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, got this Megalon, I mean, definitely what I'll call sillier. I mean, still fun, but sillier. So I wonder if this is sort of a transition film because it sort of flirts with it, but still it's pretty serious. I mean, the space alien theme, I think, they use that again in later movies, you know, but this is the first time of that. So they're kind of flirting with that. But yet I still find some of it kind of gruesome. It's fairly bloody. And I'm not just talking about, you know, monster blood when they're fighting. I mean, when the girl who's doesn't have an implant that's controlled by the aliens, it's her pretty earrings that are the receiver. He rips those things out of her and they're bloody earlobes on her and his fingers are bloody. I mean, that's, not yeah, the necessary. yeah the, the the space alien theme. I think they had done it before. This wasn't the first time, but it it was the I want to say I think it was the first time we saw it in the states. This is where the release of the films gets confusing because there was Invasion of the Astro Monsters, which came out in Japan in '65, but didn't come out in the states until '70. Destroy All Monsters was released in Japan in August of '68 and then was released in the U.S. in May of 69. So Destroy All Monsters actually was three years after Invasion of the Astro Monsters, but in the U.S. was one year before it actually came out. The order, at this time, movies weren't coming out strictly in order. They're, they're a little bit out of sync, or they're not in sync with the, the, the year in which they got their release over in Japan. Following that, going forward, the movies were released... Um, more in sync with the year. But that was after the Showa era. I think the Showa era continued to have a gap. Sometimes I think like, Tim, was it Terror of Mechagodzilla? There may have been up to maybe three years difference from the Japan release to the US release. You know, obviously there's other exceptions, but by the time you get to the 80s, there was most of the time the movies were being released in order and in close proximity to the year that, that they made it in Japan. We didn't make our normal disclaimer that we are not kaiju experts. You definitely more than me, but I'm just yes. going by my gut. So if you're listening to this for facts, you're not going to get them. You're going to get my uh, opinions and my feelings. And I wouldn't uh, Yeah, we're the knowledge that I'm imparting. <laughs> exactly. I'm not an expert. You know, I've got uh, information from a, a fantastic book Give a shout out to this book. If you don't have it, if you are getting into these films and you want to know more, um, or you Japanese films in general, it's called Japanese Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, a critical analysis and filmography of 103 features released in the United States, 1950 to 1992, by Stuart Galbraith IV who is oftentimes featured on commentary or documentaries. I believe he is on the, the new Gamera set. This book has got a lot of great information, well worth you know tracking down. I don't know if it's you know out of print or its availability, but it's 
uh, it's a great resource to, for these films and, and will help help you know a little bit more about it. It won't help you, however, be able to to pronounce the names <laughs> accurately. So, are we even going to try? <laughs> I'm going to try. Oh, I'm going to try. Uh, and uh, my disclaimer is, I will probably butcher a few along the way, and I apologize up front, uh, as we did the last time we talked Godzilla. And plus, I'll have to be I'll have to be careful how I say it because I always joke with these names, and I, I, I when I with Carla and I kind of scream out like I'm an announcer announcing a Japanese wrestling match. So uh, if I start doing that, just virtually smack me and I'll stop. Yeah, I, I will attempt, but I'm, I'm I know I'm gonna butcher a few of them along the way. I suppose. Wanna, however, it goes. Do you want to dive into the cast right now and talk about some of the cast and characters? Okay, both movies actually have some of the same cast in them. I have to admit, I didn't catch it right away, but I start, I, some of the faces look familiar, and then, of course, the names as I started diving into it. In this movie, our lead character, Captain Katsuyo, and I can't remember how they pronounce the last name, Yamabi, uh, is played by Akira Kubo, and Akira Kubo uh, was also uh, the male lead in Yogg that we'll talk about. He was in other films, um, Son of Godzilla, just Gamera, Guardian of the Universe in 95. He's still alive, 83. We have the uh, character of Dr. Yoshido, played by Jun Tazaki, uh, was in a lot of other films of this era, Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Invasion of the Astro Monster, Ibra, Horror of the Deep, died in 70 excuse me, died in 85 at the age of 72. Yukiko Kobayashi plays the character of Kyoko Manabi, retired in 73. If you look at the age and how old she was, she would have been in her 20s, most likely retired when she got married. But she did make a comeback in 2018 in a movie called The Great Buddha Arrival. And she is now 73, so she is still alive and well. The character of Dr. Utani is played by Yoshiro, oh, here we go, Tsuchiya. Um, a lot of films. Seven Samurai, Godzilla Raids Again, Throne of Blood, Son of Godzilla, plays in Yogg Monster Space, which we'll talk about. He was also in Godzilla versus King Ghidorah in 91. He died just a few years ago, 2017, at the age of 90. And then we have. The Kilak Queen, played by Kyoko Ai, AI, only in 12 films, only 14 at the time of filming. And she was obviously under like what the silver headgear, or whatever, but very young, very young at the time of filming. Retired in 77, so again, was in her 20s, again, probably retired when she got married. She's still alive and well. And we have, absolutely have to mention that Godzilla is played by uh, Haru Nakajima, who was, of course, one of the legendary and considered the all-time best suit actor in Japan. He appeared in 12 consecutive Godzilla films, from the original Gojira in 54 to Godzilla vs. Gigan in 72. He just left us a few years ago, died in 2017 at the age of 88. You've got this movie is written by Takeshi Kimura and Ashiro Honda, directed by the legendary Ashiro Honda, with music by Akira Afukabe. This movie 
I'm trying to think here. It's, it's the kind of the, the last film in, in the more traditional Toho series. And because it, it's the, the last appearance of several of the legendary monsters, as you mentioned, we're nearing kind of a change, changing of the guard that truly happens when we get, when we talk about the next film, there's some things that happened by that point that was leading Ashira Hondo away from Toho. And we'll get rich. Wasn't, wasn't this intended to be the last one, but it It was brought back more. Yeah. This was intended to be the end. And then of course it was so successful. They said, well, we have to make more. And I think that's why the, the tone almost changes a little bit after this. It goes down a different path. At least the way I view these movies is that, you know, you've got the, I always view like Gojira as, as a separate beast because it is, I mean, Godzilla dies at the end of that. Technically, in the next movie, Godzilla raids again, we're seeing Godzilla Mark II. And that's the Godzilla that's in the rest of the Shoho series. And, you know, we start getting where Godzilla's facing off monsters and such very different from the first film. And then post destroy all monsters, you know, we're entering a, 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 that seventies era where things are kind of definitely taking a turn for better or worse. And before you wrap up the show a series. And then when Godzilla does return in the eighties, things are a little bit more serious. Godzilla's back to looking a little bit more aggressive and he's not, doesn't have the, goofier look on his face. There's no dancing from Godzilla. There's no talking from Godzilla. Things are a lot more serious. This was the movie Destroy All Monsters in the Showa era. I have always viewed this as kind of a dividing line. And then things kind of take a turn. Still enjoyable, but there's a, a definite feel to the movies that were made in the 60s that I think is lacking in the movies that came post destroy all monsters in the uh, you know, as you look on into the, uh, to the seventies. I have a question for you. I'm looking now at a list of the Godzilla movies, but if you looked at a larger list of just Toho movies, I mean, the way that these characters sort of go in and out of each other's movies, I wonder if that's a better way to watch. uh, If you, if you were like me and wanted to see everything chronologically, I mean, even when we told, we were saying that these characters died in such and such a movie, you know, those aren't Godzilla movies. So what's your thoughts on that? I think that's a, it's a good way to do it. And I think that's how, honestly, I may approach this with Carla as we work in our way through these films is because obviously you want to watch Rodan and Mothra before you see them appear in the Godzilla series. And so I think that Atragon and, and Varan, you know, and then you get into the Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas and King Kong Escapes. I mean, yeah, I think there's, watch them the way that they were released because it's all part of the same universe, you know, even though they might not have been attended that way originally. And then, you know, I know some of the Toho movies, you know, don't necessarily have a direct connection. You could probably maybe skip like movies like Gorath, Dogara, which is a movie that I struggled with the first time I saw that because it's got a, a lot of crime drama elements to it. I think that if it's got a giant monster in it, I think, yes, you can watch those movies chronologically. And I think that will be kind of a fun Marvel Universe way of approaching it. It's got, you got the main storyline, you got a few fringe storylines, but they inevitably find their way back in 
And I think you could do that as, as you work your way through the, the 80s and 90s. I mean, at some point, you know, you want to watch the Mothra trilogy from the, from the 90s. You know, where maybe you watch that after you finish up that era of Godzilla before you dive into, like, you know, was it Godzilla 2000? You can even, you know, as you get into the more recent films, kind of like where does Shin Godzilla fit in? And you've got uh, American Godzilla and, and Godzilla King of the Monsters and King Kong versus Godzilla. Maybe we'll see that next year. Who knows? We should have seen it already. Some of those, you know, movies I think you could kind of watch out of order, obviously, because Godzilla has got one thing going right now, but then there's Toho was kind of existing on its own right now. And I don't know that we're going to get another film. It's a direct follow-up to Shin Godzilla. So it gets a little hazier in more recent years. But back in that era, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I'd say absolutely. Watch the other films in chronological order, and it'll be a fun experience. You got anything else on cast and crew? I believe that's all I've got. Let me take a quick look here. We have to mention it. Akira Fukube, 283 music credits from 47 until 2007. He died in 2006 at the age of 91. Amazing music, as we said, enhances these films. Not much more you can say. He's just legendary composer. Ishiro Honda, so many great films. Obviously, he just didn't do all Godzilla films. I mean, sure, there's Gojira and Rodan and Varan the Unbelievable, but there's also movies like The Mysterians, which is not tied into the Godzilla universe, but that's a, that's a fun film. H-Man or The Human Vapor, those are really fun. You get some of these other Japanese sci-fi monster films, legendary. And we'll talk a little bit more about his departure from Toho here in a moment. He died in 93, or yeah, died in 93 at the age of 81. When you you hear those names of Ashiro Hondo or Akira Fukube, you know you're kind of getting, in most cases, the best of the best from this era of Godzilla when it comes to music and, and direction, certainly. Beyond so, that, I think that's about all I've got. Okay, well, I want to tell you a couple of little things I really liked about it, if that's okay. All right. Most of all, this might be imagination. I might have imagined that it happened, but did in the early uh, stages, did Rodan dive into the ocean and take a bite out of a shark? Or did I imagine that? No, didn't he dive in and, and, and get a shark or something? He like picked it up, right? They yeah, were so, I mean, yeah. To tell, but I thought, oh, that is, that's awesome that that happened. Yeah, that, that was a cool scene because I, I remember Carla jumped and she's like, oh my gosh. And she like, I said, it's not even that, that bloody, but it's like the poor little, you know, yeah. You know Carla with creatures, but she, she didn't like that scene. As silly as it sounds, sometimes these plots get bogged down with the human story and the romances. And I just really liked the way that this movie dealt with that so efficiently. You know, the leader of the spaceship and then the woman that's on the base on Earth, you know, there are a couple. And the only way we know that is one quick phone call he made to her while she was on the moon. And he made a joke about her being there on that bay on Monsterland with the with the monsters and he tell, she says something about, you know, don't worry about me. And he goes, Oh, I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about more worried about Godzilla. So, you know, they have a relationship, but that's like it until the end. So, you know, that relationship, yet it doesn't have to be a big part of the story that drags it down. So I really liked that. The special effects. What can I say to me, they were top 
of the game, those miniatures, the destruction. It's just amazing what they did. And I, the only one thing, if they had stuck with that, but there's one scene where people are running in front of a mat or a something and you see the line around the people. I, that's the only scene that I, I wish it drug down the special effects for me. The other thing when it comes to to monster action, yeah, you get plenty of it in this movie. The plot, you don't get lost in the plot in this one. I mean, the, the plot is is fairly simple and straightforward, and you get all sorts of good monster action in this one. I mean, it's obviously, you get 11 monsters in this one, uh, 12 if you count the, the fire dragon. That's the most that would ever appear in any Godzilla movie until Godzilla Final Wars, which pretty much featured everybody and everything. That was all hands on deck in that one to, to give Godzilla a big final send-off. And I think aside from uh, Varan, who again, out of necessity, doesn't get much to do, I think everyone has a moment, at least in this film. you got all this big cast. Everybody gets a, a moment to, to shine at one point or another. Too bad we didn't get a chance to see Mothra in in all her glory because there's only so much you can do with the larva and carla's not a fan of the larva stage of mothra so she was disappointed we didn't get to see more yeah i mean I the mothra we didn't have the twins is this the only movie that the twins aren't in uh what with mothra i don't know i they seem to pop up in about every other mothra film it may be yeah because i don't know how you could have squeeze the the twins into the storyline realistically one more thing i liked about it since uh, so many monsters so much going on some scenes are done inside a mission control or something and you see the action on little monitors uh-huh. you know so you can see yeah. simultaneously i really like that i think maybe they did that in shin godzilla some but it just adds an, a level of realism even from one crude point that you don't see any seams, you know, it's such a small picture. It just looks all realistic. Yeah. And plus that's how you would view it. If you're monitoring monster attacks all over the world, you couldn't be everywhere at once. So to see them at the same time on monitors, I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. Very good touch. Very cool touch. That's all I have to say about it. I, I absolutely loved it. And I'm I very eager to dive back in to that uh, Criterion set, hopefully figuring out how to do the uh, <laughs> subtitled versions rather than the dubbed. Yeah, th- this was, and I have to, I think this is one of my earliest Godzilla films too. I remember seeing this back in the seventies. My very first one was King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, which I would have seen pre-1975 because I have a memory of watching it in our, living room before we got the family room in the back. So we got that in 75. So I would have been probably seven, maybe eight years old when I watched King Kong versus Godzilla. And then within those following years, when we got cable is when I really started to see a lot of them, not all, but that's when I would have seen this one at some point. It's funny. Again, this is a movie I remember seeing the trailer and I've told many times, I'm not going to tell it again, my story of, of my aunt taking me to see House of Dark Shadows and we had to leave early. I know they played this trailer there and it was coming like the next week. They may have had the poster in the lobby and I remember wanting to see it. I don't remember actually seeing it though. So I may not have actually seen it in the theaters, but I know I have since then at some point. 
This one is is part of the Criterion set. That's the way to go. Um, you know, it it regularly goes for one hundred and sixty dollars. Obviously, wait until the next uh, Criterion fifty percent off sale in November. If you don't have it, hang tight. Get it for half price. It is well worth eighty dollars. You're getting every film made in the Showa era and a plethora of extras and cool packaging. If you, for some reason, have to have just this movie and no other Godzilla movie, I don't know why would you. The Tokyo Shock Blu-ray is out of print, but it is still available for and running about $20. So that price hasn't gone crazy yet. If you just want to get this movie, go ahead and get that for 20 bucks. But for another 60 bucks, you get everything else in the in the box set from Criterion. If you wait till November, much better buy for your money. Good first show. I'm going to run to the snack bar. Anything you'd like me to get you? You can. You can. You know that that uh, in 1971 there are some very popular candies. Yeah. And so uh, maybe maybe uh, give me some Mike and Ike. Maybe uh, a now and later. Uh, and maybe they got this brand new candy called Laffy Taffy. Just made its debut in 1971. I'll avoid the atomic fireballs. As a kid, I used to love fruit stripe gum. That was the most popular candy, believe it or not, in 1971. I'm going to go for Laffy Taffy or some Now and Laters. Maybe some Mike and Ike's. Give me all three. All right. And if, uh, of, uh, flavors, is there a particular flavor of like the Laffy Taffy? Or? Uh, not of the Laffy Taffy, but I used to like the lime flavor of the Now and Later. Mm. I don't even think they make those anymore. Maybe, I don't know. I haven't seen those in a long time. The uh, banana Laffy Taffy. I do too. Yes, yes. And I'm going to have to give you double the amount for Coke because since we were last in our time machine, Coke is now doubled in price. It's now 20 cents for for a bottle of Coke. Yikes. Usually I, I would just get it, but I'm going to have to ask you to pay me back. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll, uh, I'll be back. Don't let anything too exciting happen while I'm gone. To visit our snack bar and treat yourself to some delicious Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Cook the Castleberry way slowly over open pits of glowing charcoal, then seasoned with a sauce that's zesty, yet delightfully mild to please the entire family. Also at the snack bar, you'll find popcorn and soft drinks and candy and french fries to go with your Castleberry's barbecue sandwiches. There's plenty of time before the movie starts, so visit our snack bar right now for Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Still plenty of time to come and be served at the refreshment center before showtime. I don't care how many times I see him, I still love the intermission cartoons. I love them. That, that's that's one. That's part of the the price of you know admission alone. As I absolutely love them. However, while you were away and in that incredibly long line at the concession stand, I did a little bit of research and top grossing movie of the year. Take a pick. What do you think was the top grossing movie of 1971? Are you giving me a choice, or I have to guess blind? Guess blind. I'm not going to give you a choice. You got to guess blind. Space Amoeba. <laughs> Space Amoeba. No, no, it was not even in the top 10. Oh. Actually, you know, a movie that, that was one of the top movies, I think it was number 12 for the year, is a movie we've covered on the show. Yeah. Willard. Ah. Willard was one of the, it was number 12, I, I'm pretty sure. Nice. But the number one movie of the year was Billy Jack. 
Oh, wow. Never would have gotten it. Number two, and they're so similar, a double feature alone, <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> James Bond represented at number three with Diamonds Are Forever. The French Connection at number four. And as we work our way down the list in various spots, we have Dirty Harry, A Clockwork Orange, The Andromeda Strain, and Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes in the top 10. That's awesome. Uh, it wasn't in the top 10, but it was oh. in like the top 20 of the, uh, of the year. Well, still awesome. Still, yeah. And although, you know, I couldn't find any of these songs on the radio when we were coming to the drive-in, maybe we'll listen to some of these songs on the way out. Uh, some of the popular songs of 1971, we had Indian Reservation by the Raiders. I don't know, is that culturally insensitive in 2020? Probably. It wasn't in 1971. Um, I've, I've always loved that song. I haven't um, thought about that in years. <laughs> it's kind of catchy, yeah. I don't know. You've Got a Friend by James Taylor. I've never been a big James Taylor fan myself, but I know he's he's loved by many. How Can You Mend a Broken Heart by the Bee Gees? I love that song. I'll well, <laughs> openly admit it. I didn't realize it was 1971, though. And then uh, this may be heresy. I'm not a big Carole King fan, but It's Too Late was a big hit for her uh, hmm. in uh, this the uh, – summer of 1971. So anyway, those are a few, a few tunes from the year in which we find ourselves in. However, we're getting ready for the second movie of the night. We call it Space Amoeba, but in 71, it was Yogg Monster from Space. <laughs> I think we need to dive into it. A rocket ship to unexplored planets captured by unknown powers. Yog, monster from space. You are powerless against me. An irresistible, terrorizing monster. ourselves into the giant crab of the jungle turtle. Monsters never before seen. Unconquerable, the unbelievable. Yog, monster from space. Well, that was another fun one. This one starts off of this world, an unmanned probe to Jupiter. Uh, is on the way for, for an expedition and encounters what I am going to call fairy dust in space. It causes them to turn around, head back to Earth. It does splash down the ocean. Nobody sees it except one man. It's flying. How could nobody see it? That's what I was like. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know, but, but one passenger on an airplane sees it. And this is the same passenger that coincidentally is asked to come photograph uh, an island where they are planning to open a tourist resort. It's a, an island paradise near the Splashdown site. Coincidentally, that photographer is invited there. Doesn't really want to take the job, but he goes because uh, he knows it's by the, the Splash site. There's a cool reveal on the map where he kind of puts two and two together that that's where he is. So he goes. On their way, the locals are out fishing, I think in an area they're not supposed to, and they encounter a giant monster. From there, the fun only begins. <laughs> we could kind of have a little mini monster roll call here. And I don't know, I don't suppose this is going to be spoilers. This is monster, it's a different nature kind of a monster, right? I mean, they're giant monsters, you know, but you're dealing with it's like... Really one entity, though, that's... One entity, yeah, that's kind of like possessed them. It's... it's uh Kaiju possession. I'm not sure. We had Kai, you know, we've had aliens controlling the monsters. I guess this is more of like a possession rather than like a radio device or something. Similar, I guess, similar to what we got in Destroy All Monsters, but different. Well, and the, I guess the point is that we don't see them all together. It's one at a time because when one of them is hurt or destroyed, the, the fairy dust goes into another native island creature and grows and transforms into a giant. First, we have Gazora. He's the giant squid. This creature would make an appearance in 2004 in Godzilla Final Wars, just a cameo like I think every other monster that ever appeared in a Toho film. We have Ganymes, a giant crab, and then we have Kamiba or Kamibas is a giant turtle he didn't necessarily have a cameo, but his carcass was shown in Tokyo SOS yeah. in 2003. So those are our three creatures. Again, not all at the same time, but it is Gazora, the giant squid that this uh, these people, these natives that are fishing encounter. One of them uh, has a deadly encounter with Gazora. I think all three of these monsters are at like different levels of believability or, you know, I don't know how, how I want to word it, but I mean, you, the, when you look at like Ganymedes, I think Ganymedes is the best of the three monsters from a, from a visual perspective. I wish we would have seen more of, of Ganymedes in, in other, other movies. I mean, I, I would have been cool to see him go up against Godzilla, you know, as far as Kamiba or yeah, again, different names, Kamibas, the giant turtle. It was good. It was good the little head bobbing in and out, you know, is kind of uh, almost looked like one of those little toys or something. You press the thing and the head comes out. I called it a kaiju erection. (laughs) Well, yeah. Okay. And that will be with me now. If I see this movie again, (laughs) I got nothing there. The giant squid Gazora. Okay. I kind of, I liked the look initially, but Let's be honest. I mean, if their monster budget, they spent more money on Ganymedes and a little less on, on Kamiba, and whatever was left was went to Gazora because Gazora, and I love the Ultraman series, but it did look like some, actually, no. I think it almost looked like something you find in Power Rangers. You know, it, it, it was almost uh, a third string visual appearance 
but I like the idea of the squid and, and the tentacles and such. Carla commented on this. She said, they, they, she says, the eyes of Ganymedes look so cool. She says, but the eyes of, of Gazora look so fake. If they would have even done something with the eyes, I don't know what they could have done. Something better might have made him look a little bit better. That That is a weak point in this film is that he, he she, it, Gazora looks a little cheap at times. Not all the time, but at times comes across as, as a little cheap. Well, not exactly devil's advocate, but this was a first time viewing for me. I did not know the plot. I thought uh, Gazora was the only monster and he grew on me. By the time he disappeared, I really liked it. Yeah, it's goofy, but you know, I'm the guy that loves the giant claw and doesn't think there's anything silly about that. Yeah. So, I, I didn't dislike the Zora. Yeah. I, I, let me say this: I didn't dislike the Zora. I just I was comparing it to the others. Yeah, well, that's the what the problem I think because there is a difference between the two and then the one, and I think it's the difference that makes you realize that Gazora might not be quite up to snuff, but had the movie been totally Gazora, which I actually thought it was going to be, I would have been fine with it. You see, this was a first time viewing for me too. I initially thought this movie was uh, Dogara, which is like this giant jellyfish, like space amoeba or whatever. And I struggle, like I think earlier I said, I struggle when I've seen that movie only once because there's a whole subplot of gangsters and stuff. And it, it, I struggle with that movie. Whereas when I really started diving into this, I'm like, oh, this is not what I thought and think it was. And I, I too was not familiar with, with the fact that this is all three monsters. I wasn't familiar with any of the plot. When it, so I really, I guess I went into this movie blind and... I was pleasantly surprised. I, I loved the heck out of this film. I know that uh, I mentioned Stuart uh, Galbraith IV, who, the writer of that book, not a fan of this movie. He thought it meanders and that it's, you know, a low spot for, for Toho. And he's the expert. And, you know, maybe he, he, is, he knows more about these. Well, clearly he knows more about these films than I do. And he's seen them all. And he looks at it with maybe a more critical eye than I have. I'm looking at it less critically and more than did it entertain me yeah it entertained the heck out of me and i'd gladly watch this again i have this on mp4 i got a really good copy of it off of archive.org that i'm fairly certain is not <laughs> should not be on archive.org but an uploader has uploaded a lot of toho movies there actually that are not godzilla films and uh, the print is really good it was in japanese with subtitles and so I would like to get this on DVD at some point or Blu-ray, hopefully at some point. I'd, I'd gladly add it to my official physical media collection because I enjoyed it that much. There was a video floating around on Facebook this week from the Aurora Borealis Observatory, and it was of what I assume is a real squid crawling across the beach. It was almost everywhere. I bet you guys have seen it. If not, I'll see if I can post it. I don't know if, if there's a way. I guess I could share the link. But you want to talk about a scary octopus, the way this thing moves. Had that been in the Space Amoeba, or if they ever did a remake, they should just use this guy because it freaking gives me the creeps. Yeah, I think if you were to redo this movie with modern special effects and do a squid that looked like that squid on the beach... Yeah, that'd be terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. 
in the opening scene of this movie, the character of Sakura gets killed. I mean, they're not supposed to be there. They're they're fishing. They've been told, don't do that. You're going to upset the god. And, uh, well, you know, things don't go well for Sakura. And Rico, which I, I keep thinking the, the subtitle spelling of that is off because Carla Kabaskovich says, how do they get Rico in, in a kaiju film? I'm thinking maybe maybe it's supposed to be Rico, R-I-K-O, probably. Uh, I don't know. And maybe it is R-I-C-O, but it does seem a little odd compared to all the other names. But nonetheless, you know, just imagine a, a more CGI a squid coming out and, and attacking or like attacking the village. Yeah, that'd be pretty terrifying. As it is, I mean, I, I love the idea of the tentacles. And while, yes, it, of the three monsters, it's probably the least believable or impressive although i don't know now that i keep thinking of your description of the turtle i may have to re- <laughs> rethink my ranking you know uh, they should have they could have shown this movie at that adult drive-in they they might still be you know i don't know there may be an anniversary showing of it good lord this movie just i really enjoyed the heck out of it and i think that it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit because these monsters never really popped up anywhere except briefly as you mentioned a cameo here, a carcass there. That's the extent. And it, and it seems to me like, and Ganymedes doesn't pop up anywhere again. This is a one and done. And I'm like, that's the best of the three monsters, at least as you know, my opinion, how it could never pop up anywhere. Maybe they, they took parts of it and butchered it. To me, that's, it seems like maybe a missed opportunity. Maybe it's the name space amoeba. I don't know that that necessarily is an accurate description. Yog, monster from space, might be a bit more descriptive than space amoeba. I guess it is this amoeba-like thing at the beginning and then it attaches itself and comes to Earth. I guess it acts that way, but I don't know. To me, it's not entirely descriptive because you don't really see it in that form as it's attacking anyone. It's possessing people. Maybe a better title. Maybe a better title would have got this movie a bit more recognition. This movie for me is, uh, I mean, I loved it, but it's not quite to the level of Destroy All Monsters. I don't know how much is the dubbing, but there was some really silly dialogue and uh, the plot, some really big plot holes. Just a couple things I want to share and see what you thought or if you noticed about this. They play up this part about how the temperature, everything's cold where... The, yeah, the been in the monsters, and so they surmise that heat, you know, is going to be the enemy. I don't really know that they get to test that theory. All of a sudden, it turns to sound and to bats. That seemed like out of the blue, and that thing with bats, I thought, kind of maybe that's where it jumped the shark for me. See, I liked that. I thought that was kind of cool visual, the bats circling the monsters. But it does seem like it's out of left field. I was like, because, yeah, they made such a big deal about talking about the cold. But then I guess, I don't know, how would you do the cold on an island? It's not like, well, we gosh, we have this giant refrigeration unit on the other side of the island. It's almost like they kind of back themselves into a corner with that. I was like, so what are you going to do with that? How can you generate cold? Well, no, they were cold. They they thought heat would be the enemy. Uh, Right, I'm saying, but I mean, I mean... As, as the squid gets out, right, I mean, there's no cold. If that was, like, feeding the energy gotcha. to, you would think, like, okay, well, that's why I'm saying that yeah, heat's the enemy. 
but that's a, I mean, that's a pretty big weakness then. It's like they make the big deal about he's in the water, but then he comes out, it's like, well, he's immediately in warmer weather. Isn't that just immediately weakening him? So that doesn't really make him a very strong creature. Okay, so you just keep him on land for a while and he's just going to have a heat stroke and die? No, they the sonar thing, I think, was a better way of defeating. But then why introduce the whole idea of the cold thing at the beginning it seemed weird. Yeah, and I missed the point where they figured out that it was sonar. All of a sudden, they were in the cave trying to wrangle bats. And yeah, the bats flying around looked fantastic. When they first flew out of the cave, those were bats right out of Dark Shadows. Bats Actually, I was impressed with the bats in there. Even when they were kind of flying around a little bit, you know, I, 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 I was impressed at that point. Yeah, there was some goofier ones, but some of the visuals I thought were kind of cool. Yeah. For a 1970 Toho movie... I thought it was there were some cool visuals with it. I know where they they made the jump. They kind of just stumbled on that fact with the the bats when they found the bats dead, and they 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 kind of started putting two and two together. And when Kamiba's is like stopped by the bats, that's when they figure out. Oh, okay. The bats are like, oh no, the bats are what's keeping it away. Why? What? What is it? Oh, it's the sonar. Okay. It was a bit of a leap, but. Now, they did introduce that idea, and then that's when they started going from cave to cave, and they kept finding out all the bats were, were gone, right. and then finally find the one. Well, that's because Obata going around killing all the bats, because that's that's the weakness. He's trying to eliminate that, so that that's, they get rid of the bats as uh, an obstacle for their world domination. Some of the dialogue that cracked me up, and unfortunately it was mostly from the, our young females in the movie when Rico is injured and one of the native girls comes to meet him or, or collect him or what the our main girl says that's a shame they were probably lovers <laughs> I, that just caught me off guard like yeah yeah I don't know anyway well, uh, of course because they're two they're they're a boy and a girl on an island what, what else would they possibly be yes uh, I did like a line, though, that I thought was kind of clever when, I guess, one of the natives is sort of like a witch doctor, and he curses these these people for invading the island. And I think it's probably the main guy that says, now we have a witch doctor trying to kill us besides a monster. I thought that was kind of funny. Here's situations that are contrived to say the best. And again, this does not, I love this movie, but it, it just was funnier. I had more fun with this one. They, they're standing somewhere watching a monster and they're out of ammunition. Well, coincidentally, here comes a, a band of natives, arms full of ammunition. So they make the comment. Well, they made the comment at one point that the, that the Japanese were on the island at one point during World War II. So that must be they just decided to leave all their weapons behind on the island. I, yeah. Kind of what I assumed. Oh, so here they come and they've got all this gasoline and the guns and they say, now we're ready to fight. And the girl says, we're lucky. Now I feel happy for the first time. Then they're instantly out of the ammunition. Like two seconds later, they're out of all that ammunition that was going to save the day. See, I always wonder when you see those weird lines like that, it's like, is that really what they said? Or is this, you know, a poor translation? Or was it one one of those statements that just doesn't translate 100% into English? And so it comes across as like, I'm happy for the first time, which, yes, yeah, sounds totally goofy. Or was it just that way? I don't know. That's 
You probably don't remember a nitpicky point like that, but I wonder in the subtitled version what she said. Her lips were moving. She was saying something. Did, so did you watch the subtitle version or did no, you watch the... Oh, I watched on Amazon Prime. It was uh, dubbed. I watched the subtitle version of this and I'm fairly certain that's what they said in the okay. subtitle. Yeah, I'm fairly certain. Now you got me thinking now if, if I'm remembering wrong, but I'm pretty sure. That's why I was saying is like, I wonder if that's something that didn't transfer over in translation. If only we spoke Japanese, we'd know for sure. The first time I copied this movie off archive, I didn't have subtitles. So I was like, oh, this is going to be problematic. And then I knew that, you know, this is on Amazon Prime, which is great. I've gotten to the point now with these movies is that I have to watch them in their original language if I, if I, have, if I can do it because there are certain inflections. Although that said... My, Carla once again asked, why are they always so angry? She says, they always seem so intense. And it's like, there are some pretty intense moments on this island when they're just randomly talking. It was like, you know, where is Dr. Obata? There is Dr. Obata. I was like, calm down. You know, have, have you know, it's just, I know that that's these movies, right? That's just kind of the way they act. And sometimes it's just, they're, they're, that's just a Japanese way of speaking in these films. Obata was the one that got possessed Yes. Okay, so I, I just got a kick out of this. He must not watch horror movies because what does he do when he sees the fairy dust? He pokes it with a stick. You don't do yeah. that when he's seen the blob. And then one last comment that uh, I thought was funny when they did determine that the bats were uh, the, the one weakness. The woman's final words of wisdom when they determine that they, the sound waves are the weakness. She says, wonderful, now we can do something at last. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that's the way it translates over into the subtitles too. I, uh, I okay. So someone out there is probably said they're saying, "Gosh, you guys hated this movie." Oh no, 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 no! I love this movie. In fact, there are elements of this movie that I actually almost liked better than Destroy All Monsters. Oh yeah. Destroy All Mon- now I love Destroy All Monsters because it's just a big giant monster fest, right? But there was something about this movie that just kind of made me feel like I was watching a 1950s American monster flick, right? Just kind of the way it was set up, the way the, the, the plot developed and, and we're the monster, but now we're going to do the plot and we're going to set everything up and put the people right there. And now we're going to see the monster and the way it was structured reminded me of, of a classic 1950s sci-fi monster flick. Well, you know what? I could make an argument. It was, in parts, very reminiscent of King Kong. Yeah. I, yeah. There were certain elements of that. I could see that. Yeah. I definitely do enjoy the movie. I love the movie. I, I will say it. I love the movie. And, and I know it doesn't get as much love. Like I said, it deserves more. I did notice at the end, and I kind of had to chuckle at this a little bit, because this pops up in, in a lot of these films, and it's just part of the it's what you expect, especially in the Gamera films. But at the end, they're all waving, waving to the ship. Hello, yeah. hello, we're here, ship. And you always get that in these movies. You got that a little bit in Destroy All Monsters, right? The helicopter's going over. The monsters are all back on the island, you know, and everyone's happy. Hello, monsters down on the island. Yeah, you, know, you get that in the Gamera movies as Gamera's going off. You know, hello, Gamera. Bye, Gamera. And I love that. It's the photographer says, it's crazy. I'll never be able to sell this story. And that's just the funniest thing anyone's ever said. They all just, ah, ha, ha, ha. I know. 
And I love that. There's a charm to that. It's like, I, you know, other people will say, well, that's just horrible. You know, why that's just horrible acting. Why do they always do that in these movies? I think that's just part of the plot structure. And you just something you had that happy moment at the end of the film in this era, certainly. And it just, it always kind of makes me chuckle, but it makes me smile because it's kind of like these kind of goofy charms in the, in these films are like a warm blanket, right? Even when you see some of the moments like with Godzilla in the movies where he's doing something goofy, I don't know, to me, it's still, it's nostalgia, whatever. It's like a warm blanket's just wrapped around me. It's like, I know that's goofy. I know that it can be silly sometimes, but man, they're fun. And, and that's, that's, I'm not coming here for an Academy Award winning film. I'm coming here to have 90 minutes of fun and to get away from the rest of the world. And certainly this year more than ever, I think mm. people just need to lighten up and have some fun. These movies are, are a perfect way to break away for an afternoon and watch the world get destroyed in a much more pleasurable way uh, <laughs> than what we're doing to ourselves. Watch, watch a giant monster go ahead and do it. Watch Godzilla destroy Tokyo. Watch a giant squid come out of the ocean and tear apart the natives. That, to me, it's just fun. And all these little goofy things, they, they don't deter from my enjoyment of the movie. They actually enhance it. And any deficiencies the movie has, in this case, doesn't, doesn't deter my enjoyment of it. And I would, you know, I'll buy this on DVD, you know, when I can find it at a reasonable price. It is actually... So the good thing is, is it's available on Amazon Prime. The Tokyo Shock DVD is out of print. You can get it for about $30, which is not bad compared to some of the other Tokyo Shock movies that run a lot higher. It's something that I will, I'll have to put on my list and, and something that I'd, I'd like to have a physical copy of. MP4s are great. I love having the digital copies, but I'm forever going to be old school and I'm going to want that physical media in my hand, even though... My digital copy isn't going to go away. Something about having a, a DVD or a Blu-ray to me is still the best way to go. And I'm, I'm, I'm the old, old school, I guess, on that. Like I know you are and others are. I just, I'm not going to forego that physical media because I'm a collector. I don't just watch these movies for the sake of watching them. I want to collect them because I want to be able to, to watch them the way I want, when I want, and not rely on any uh, a streaming service to tell me when uh, I can or can't watch a movie. What do you have cast and crew or trivia wise? Okay, so we have some familiar names that we just talked about. We had uh, Akira Kubo as Taro Kudo, the male lead from Straw Monsters is our male lead here. The uh, character of Ayeko Hoshino, the young reporter, I guess, or, or... female lead of the film is played by Atsuko Takahashi. She was actually in Destroy All Monsters, but she was one of the background Kelax. She didn't have a huge role in that. She only did a couple of kaiju films, actually. And then there was, she retired actually in 71. So she retired like right after this at the age of 22. So here's another young woman hitting her early 20s and most likely got married and quit acting. She is still alive, though, and, and is 70 years old. Kenji Sahara, playing the character of Makoto Obata. A lot of flicks for him. Going back to Gojira, he played Young Lover on the Sound in Gojira. 
He was in Rodan, Mysterians, Mothra, Matango. That's a crazy movie. You ever seen Matango? I never have. I need to. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's a trip. War of the Gargantuas. He played the character of June Manjomi in 27 episodes of Ultra Q. Have you seen Ultra Q? No. I bought Ultra Q, the Mill Creek set, you know, because they're putting out all the Ultraman series. Ultra Q is the series that preceded Ultraman, and I have not seen any of them except for some clips. They look really, really interesting. Different in tone than the Ultraman series, simply because they're, they're dealing more with, like, monsters and not someone fighting the monsters. He was also in several of the 90s Godzilla flicks. He was in Godzilla Final Wars, and he is still alive and well at the age of 88. We mentioned Yasiro uh, Sachuya. He plays here, Dr. Kyochi Amida, and Yukiko Kobayashi appeared as Saki, the native girl who marries Riko. Uh, it's written by I or E. Ogawa, E.I. Ogawa, wrote Lake of Dracula and Evil of Dracula. Mm. So some pretty big creds there. Uh, and, of course, we mentioned already uh, Ashira Hondo directed and Akira Fukube, who did the music. This movie was the last movie produced by Toho under the old system in which the actors were under studio contract. This was also the last film that Ashira Hondo did for several years for Toho, because this was also the first movie produced after the death of special effects legend uh, E.G. Tsuburaya, a well-known special effects legend, Ashiro Hondo wanted an in-memory-of in the film, and they wouldn't do it. Toho wouldn't do it. And so in protest, Ashiro Honda and several others within Toho Productions, they left, and they went to work for rival Tsuburaya uh, Productions, the production company that, who was doing the Ultraman series at that time. And he would only do one more movie for Toho. He came back and did Terror of Mechagodzilla in 75. So Ashura Hondo, who had done so many, that was the parting of the ways. And it, I don't know why they wouldn't do it in memory of, because that was, uh, uh, Subaraya was well-known, a legend in, in the special effects department, why he wouldn't be recognized. But for whatever reason, Toho decided not to, uh, not to recognize him. Destroy All Monsters was a, a dividing point. This almost certainly was, because then things... From this point forward, of course, you know, you've got different person in charge of special effects. You have Ashira Hondo had left. And, of course, you know, we mentioned Kira Fukube, you know, was, was still obviously working with him at this point. But he, too, I think, was on his way doing some other projects. If I'm correct, I could be wrong about that. But changing of the guard happening at this point. And that's where I think, as we mentioned, the films of the 50s and 60s, there's a certain charm, I think, in the 70s. They're fun, but there's a change in, I think, the overall feel of, of the movies by the time you get to, by the time you get to the films in the '70s. The only other comment I wanted to make, real quick, was I loved how in the final battle, you have the big battle between Camebus and Ganymedes, and you've got this random volcano that just you know happens to be exploding, and how Obata possessed but aware of the possession actually kills himself to kill the alien. That's, that's pretty intense, especially for, for the films from this time period, that basically someone committing suicide to save the day, more or less. 
again, it was it was pretty intense for for this time period, and and maybe another reason why I think this film should get a little more love than it actually gets. And one last comment I thought of, just comparing it to Destroy All Monsters, it's apples and oranges when you've got monsters tearing through the city and destructing everything. That's kind of cool. Not the quite the same impact as a monster, you know, stepping on a hut in the jungle. So yeah. that that kind of also sets the two apart is just the setting and the scope of the special effects make them a little different. I love each of these films for different reasons. Destroy All Monsters, I've always loved. It wasn't a first time viewing for me. And, and so I just enjoyed it as much as I'd seen others. Space Amoeba, Yogg, first time viewing. I loved it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, I was worried about it a little bit. <laughs> and once I dived in, it, it's, it's a very fun film. I'd recommend both these movies. Me too. Wow, that's it. I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. I, they're probably going to play something else while people are leaving, but let me go do that real quick and I'll be back and we can head out. And now folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Again, I have to say that was a great night at the drive-in. I think that's our favorite, my favorite trip to the drive-in this summer. I love both of those movies. But man, my phone is blowing up. You know what? I think some of our friends have probably seen this. They may have even been here tonight, and they, they've left us voicemail. Hey, guys. This is Jonathan Angarola. It's been, God, forever since I called in. I don't know how long it's been. I know it's been a while, but... I saw that you guys are doing some Shelva-era kaiju films, so how could I not call in? This is, this is a good opportunity to get back on track. So, yeah, I was really excited to see uh, you're doing Destroy All Monsters and Space Amoeba. The former, uh, Destroy All Monsters, uh, is probably, I don't know, I would say a lot of kaiju fans' favorites are its way up there just because it was such an extravaganza. I know that was supposed to be the final film, and... Toho's original Godzilla series, but obviously they kept on after the film success and went into uh, the 70s uh, with some very fun and zany 70s era films. I know those films are polarizing for some fans, but I love them all. I love all the Showa, Tokusatsu, and Kaiju films, so I'm on board. But yeah, Destroy All Monsters had played uh, pretty regularly on our local stations back in the day, so I pretty much grew up watching monster movies, sci-fi films and uh, I was born in 72 so we're talking mid to late 70s into the 80s some of the channels coming out of New York coming out of the city at WORTV, Channel 9 WPIX 11 and a few others and they would play films like King Kong vs. Godzilla, Monster Zero Definitely Destroy All Monsters Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster pretty much all the 
all the Showa-era um, kaiju films, I mean, uh, among other things. So Destroy All Monsters was definitely in that rotation. I mean, it was always a blast seeing all our favorite monsters together. This was, I guess, the second film to go with the alien invasion, thinking after Monster Zero. This will become a regular trope going into the 70s. Pretty standard stuff with, in this case, you have the Keylocks. You know, looking to uh, take over Earth and make humans their slaves. They don't really specify <laughs> beyond that, but it's very fun. I thought Monster Island was just like a dream come true. I always wished I was a kid that it actually existed. But yeah, great, great special effects. Edgy Sugaraya, uh, Ishiro Honda directing. I'm sure you guys are going to go into the production notes. I won't really get into that much. This would be one of the last films to use a lot of the Toho regulars like Akira Kupo, Jun Tazaki, Yoshio Tsuchiya, and several others. Kenji Sahara, of course. But yeah, a really fun film. It's a really great standout special effects scene. There's one where uh, Amanda is destroying a bridge in the foreground where Godzilla's in the background laying waste to what looks like a factory. Uh, and, you know, you have simultaneous action going on at the same time. Uh, the two destruction sequences are, you know, merged together, so to speak. It's just, it's just a great, it's a spectacular shot. And there are several like that in this film. Unfortunately, Baragon and Laurent uh, get only little cameos, I guess because of the conditions of their suits. But yeah, great movie and also spectacular score. Uh, Kira Fukube's score is fantastic. That driving march that for the that plays in the opening credits and then it's sprinkled throughout the film is is awesome. Even Yasmin and my wife when I when I was a while playing some of the very scores that she loved when that comes on. So destroy all monsters. I could keep talking, but I'll stop there. Space Amoeba, aka uh, Yog the Monster from Space, I prefer the former title. It is some kind of outlier for me. I do not remember this playing on TV when I was a kid. I only saw it for the first time. It was several years ago, but definitely saw it as an adult. So for some strange reason, I don't remember playing in our local, in our area. And like I said, at the time we were living in first Brooklyn and then in northern New Jersey, so we got at the NYC station. So big market, but, you know, we'd get War of the Gargantuan, all kinds of sci-fi and monster movies, but I do not remember seeing Space Invader. So it has a little bit of a different history for me. But I still enjoy it. I know Edgy Super I had passed away. I think by that point, or very close to around when filming this, it was released in 1970. So I don't think he had a hand in the special effects, as far as I know. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I know a couple of gentlemen that worked under him took the reins and probably worked on the next several Godzilla films after Space Amoeba. But I still enjoy it. It has some fun creative monsters. It's kind of fun when uh, kaiju films take it to the island. Like, it was kind of a throwback. So yes, with Space Amoeba, it definitely had a different impression on me. I still enjoy the film. Uh, I didn't grow up with it. When I did finally discover it, it was fun to watch, you know, have a first-time viewing of a uh, kaiju film from the show era. It's a fun plot. It's a fun story. Uh, with the resort hotel <laughs> premise and everything that goes awry after that and probably the last time we would see a lot of Toho regulars again, Yoshio Tsuchiya Kenji Sahara, Kira Kubo Yukiko Kobayashi was also in Destroy All Monsters and several others so yeah, so it's a fun film after this uh, also you see the Honda directing once again and after this you get into uh 
all kinds of 1970s zaniness and just everything in the kitchen sink type of filmmaking. But actually, directly following this is Godzilla vs. Smog Monster, which is actually one of my favorites. Uh, it was definitely an experimental age in the 70s for Toho, as you know, TV became king and the film industry took a serious hit. Started to probably in the late 90s, mid to late 60s, and then it really took off in the 70s. But out of that came some very interesting films. I'm sure you guys that eventually will touch on some of the other ones. Mecha Godzilla films, maybe even Megalon, which I know is much derided, but I can't help but love it. <laughs> you know, I know it has a lot of problems. Anyway, this is really great that you guys are covering this. I think that's all I have for now. Again, I'll try to provide feedback more regularly. I know I had a long hiatus. Uh, we're starting to get sleep again, which is great, because Stella is sleeping again. I did some sleep training, and uh, the last six weeks now have been much better, so not that you need to know all this, but <laughs> so I'm probably a little more awake and actually can leave legit feedback. So anyway, uh, doing a great job as always. I'm looking forward to the next episode. We'll talk to you guys soon. Okay, bye-bye. Hey guys, one other thing. The other thing I wanted to mention about a couple of the set pieces in Destroy All Monsters are just how intricate and detailed they are. The attack on Tokyo with Rodan and then Godzilla and then Manda and then Mothra and how it just keeps escal escalating and how the all-out military attack, the rockets are flying, buildings are exploding with the driving Fukube march is just amazing. I know I mentioned the specific uh, moment where Amanda and Godzilla cause some destruction simultaneously, but just that whole sequence is spectacular. The annals of uh, tokusatsu, Japanese special effects films of that era. Also, the fight with Ghidra at the end is pretty spectacular, especially with the backdrop the, the spectacular um, and beautiful matte painting of Mount Fuji as Keatris flying over them and about to land is awesome the fight itself it's really not an 8 on 1 I think that's one sometimes it's been billed as 8 on 1 monster fight it's really 4 on 1 I guess with Godzilla Gorosaurus Angerus Godzilla Gorosaurus Angerus being the main players uh, in that in that fight, the others are kind of more like uh, spectators. So I just want to mention that too. Also, one of my favorite monsters, one of my favorite sidekick monsters, are introduced in the book, which is Angerus, who sticks with Godzilla through thick and thin for the upcoming films of the seventies. But anyway, yeah, I wanted to mention that too. That's all I got. Thanks. Thank you again, Jonathan, for calling in. Uh, lots of voicemails from me this time, and that's perfectly fine. It's been a while since we've heard you, so absolutely want to hear what you have to say and we knew that you had something good to say about kaiju films you are a godzilla expert a kaiju expert so loved your thoughts there loved your comments about the set pieces in destroy all monsters yeah excellent comments all around and gotta mention thank goodness that stella is is sleeping on a more regular basis and you guys are getting some sleep that's a good thing she is absolutely adorable if anyone's out there listening to the show and you don't know who Stella is, you're you're missing a sweetheart. She is adorable and love the pictures we get from you, Jonathan. So great hearing from you. Uh, you said you're playing some catch up. That's all I do with podcasts anymore is play catch up. I'm never going to get caught up. I've accepted it. That's perfectly fine. Call in as you listen to the shows and it doesn't matter if it's been a few months or whatever. Let us know what you think. Let us know your thoughts. 
glad to hear everything is going well with you, sir. Yes, you sound rested and relaxed and energetic. I also knew Jonathan would have something to say about Kaiju, and he did pretty good with those names, you know, we were struggling with. He's our Kaiju guy. So is Steve Sullivan. Uh, I mean, he's a, a Kaiju guy as well, and I think if I recognize that number, he's left us a voicemail also. So let's listen to that. Hey, Richard. Yes, this is Steve Sullivan calling to talk about Yogg Monster from Space, aka Space Amoeba, and Destroy All Monsters. I enjoyed both those movies. Yogg is something I haven't seen a whole lot. I don't have a really great copy of it. I think it may just have been re-released on DVD, so maybe I'll, I'll pick that up again soon and watch it. I remember it as being wacky and having a lot of a monster that changed to a lot of different forms, and so in some ways it's kind of a perfect kaiju movie because it's lots of kaiju in one. Speaking of lots of kaiju in one, destroy all monsters. Boy, that, that's a treat. It's not my favorite of the Godzilla monster rallies. The uh, the earlier ones, uh, Godzilla vs. the Thing, and uh, either of the three-headed monster and Monster Zero are my faves. But it's it's got a lot of great stuff in it, even if it does have, have Minya, which is not really my fave character ever in the Toho universe. But a lot of fun. I think I first heard of it in Famous Monsters, read about it before long, long before I see it. I am lucky enough to actually have the original Blu-ray of that that has both the not-so-good international dub and also the pretty-damn-terrific Tetra Titan dub, as well as, of course, the original Japanese soundtrack. I wish that they had not uh, taken that out of, off of release so more people could have enjoyed it, but who knows, Toho moves in mysterious ways. Anyway, Destroy All Monsters did a lot of great Godzilla stuff and a lot of stuff that they then just repeated year and year and year after that. So uh, I love it. Anything with Godzilla and Rodan uh, and Ghidra is, and Mothra is, is probably good to me. So I uh, hope you guys had a great time at this drive-in double feature. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Steve Sullivan, signing off. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Great to hear from you again. I knew you'd have some great comments there on the Kaiju films. You've got a lot of cool stuff happening. You've got a book that's coming out very soon, or at least before the end of the year, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, which has an amazing cover from Mark Maddox. Absolutely looking forward to that book coming out. You love your kaiju films, Daikaiju Attack. You've got that in print out there as well. So strongly encourage anyone to, to look Mr. Sullivan up. Uh, he's on Facebook. He's got his website, which we should have in front of us here. We, maybe we'll throw a tag in when we post the show. Is this a good time to, to throw out the number? If, if you want to be cool like Mr. Sullivan and our good friend Jonathan, if you want to leave your comment on the show, Jeff, what number can it, they call? I was going to see if you were going to attempt it. It is 816-649-2582, 816-649-2582. Club. Very good. And I wanted to say, Steve Sullivan, living proof that we are not above contacting someone the day before we record and reminding them to leave us a voicemail. We will That's do that. If you want to leave a voicemail, just tell us. We will remind you. Steve asked me to do that, and, and I uh, absolutely did it. You know, we also threw the reminder out there on Facebook because I think that helps and probably helped Jonathan, I think, remember. So, you know, we like to uh, hear from everybody. And Maybe this is a good time to shout out to a couple of our, our friends who uh, were not hearing from the show today. I want to do a shout out to Derek over at Monster Kid Radio. You know, Derek's been going through some things lately. 
and uh, he is still plugging away and putting out the podcast every week. Also doing the Monster Kid Movie Club. As we're recording this, it has just started on Saturday. I think both of us will be diving in to take a peek later on, doing it every Saturday. Social Distance Saturdays have now become officially the Monster Kid Movie Club. And now he's added Tuesday nights, doing like a sci-fi double feature to the lineup. Derek, you're doing all the stuff that you love to do, and I know you're going through some stuff, so just want you to know that uh, we're thinking of you. want to shout out to Christopher R. Mim. He's had numerous delays this year with his films. I just discovered this past week that there is a clip from the new Phantom Lake Kids movie, uh, which was a lot of fun, and that hopefully we'll get a chance to see the Unseen Invasion before the end of the year in a digital format at least. Maybe next spring the world decides to calm down a little bit and we can finally see the beast walks among us. Let's keep our fingers crossed. As a filmmaker, Christopher Amim is kind of in limbo right now. SaintEuphoria.com, check it out. You can continue to contribute to his films or contribute to, to him by you know purchasing some of the things he's got on the site. Do that. I have a shout out. Go ahead. And it's probably your next one, but Steve Turek. That was my next one. Go ahead. Here it was. He had an unexpected and lengthy visit to the hospital. I don't think we're sharing uh, HIPAA information or anything. He shared that on Facebook. Still trying to figure out what's wrong with him. He's in good health. He's feeling much better, but we sure need to figure out what's wrong with him. He told me he feels like he's in an episode of House. Hopefully, Dr. House or somebody can figure out. And, of course, his podcast, Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and those interviews he keeps landing or just knocking them out of the park. It's fantastic. Our thoughts are with, with, with Steve. I would say get well, but he's home and he's, uh, he's doing better. So just say, uh, hang in there, Steve, and you're waiting for some answers. As we stay in touch pretty much every week with, with uh, Mr. Turek, officially letting him know we're thinking of him and wish him well. Let's do some new business. Let's zip through some birthdays, some video releases, some anniversaries. August is pretty light for releases. Nothing till the 11th, and that's the Phantom of the Opera Hammer version from 62 that's coming out on Shout Factory. I didn't tell you that when Richard Clemenson from Little Shop of Horrors posted the, uh, not commentaries, but the that series, he's doing the Men of Hammer or something that he was yeah. doing, bonus features. I found the list of all the ones he's done and I ended up ordering those Shout Factory movies so that I could have those. I believe Phantom of the Opera is one of them, and that is coming out, so I should have that coming pre-order. Still cannot keep up with all of them, but that at least helped me make a cut and get some (laughs) of them that I wanted. On the 18th, we mentioned it earlier, this is Gamera the Complete Collection. I also bit the bullet and and pre-ordered that. I I don't know what to say about that. Well, I will say I've never seen a Gamera movie, but Jonathan, this is oh, on wow. shoulders. If I don't like him, I'm going to hold you responsible. But his love of those movies is so strong that I am taking a, a gamble. I, I've heard that from other people as well. But yeah, I thought if I can get them all in one place and a cool looking set and a book and all that, I, I bit the bullet and did it. I think the price is good too. I mean, some people were complaining about the price, but it's like, look at the number of movies you get the package you're getting it in and the wealth of extras that you're getting. I mean, you're getting a hardcover book and yeah, well worth the price. And 
I've seen all of the original Gamera films. I have not seen the the 90s trilogy or the, the last Gamera film. You will enjoy the Gamera series most assuredly. Well, all but the last one from 1980. That's a rough one. Uh, Gamera Super Monster. But it has an, an infectious little tune that once you hear it, it kind of just sticks in your head and is the stuff of nightmares. They're a lot of fun. They're, they're a lot more lighthearted. They are more kid-friendly. I think it's certainly the first couple of Gamera films, I honestly think, hold up against the best of the Godzilla films, in my opinion. Yeah, you, you've got a fun journey ahead of you there. I'm going to bite the bullet and get that set as well. It's well worth it, even though I've got all the movies. The extras and the packaging is what sold me on it. Also on the 18th, I don't know if this is coming out or not, the page I go to to get these titles, The Day the World Ended from 1955. Uh, you click on the link and it doesn't go anywhere, and I searched on Amazon and it doesn't list it as coming out. So maybe or maybe not The Day the World Ended. Ben, these aren't necessarily horror, horror, but they were on that page and I just got a kick out of them. A double feature on one set, and this is from Kino. She should have said no and the devil's sleep. He should have said no is also known as Wild Weed. It's from 1949, and here's the synopsis. A chorus girl's career is ruined, and her brother is driven to suicide when she starts smoking marijuana. <laughs> and then The Devil's Sleep, you might think that's a horror movie. It's from 49 also, but the head of an illegal drug ring uses a woman's health spa as a front for his sleeping pill racket. Wow, a racket of sleeping pills. Who would have yeah. known? I just thought that was funny. The 50s drug movies, you know, there's got to be some charm in that. On the 18th, another hammer from Shout Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Now, I have this version, which Rich can see, but others cannot. It's a three-disc set. I can't tell what studio... Oh, Icon? Maybe? It's, it's definitely a uh, foreign version, but it's got two DVDs and a Blu-ray all kinds of special features. I don't know if I need to buy the Shout Factory version having this one. I have not decided yet if I'm gonna order Frankenstein and the Monster Room Hill. I love the movie. That's why I splurged at some point and got this super duper set. Maybe I'll get online and see what people would recommend on that. And then the 25th, another Universal Horror Collection. We're up to number six. This to me is a good one. Cult of the Cobra is on it. I love that movie. Shadow of the Cat from 61, which is technically a Hammer film in everything but name. And also The Black Castle from 52 and Thing That Couldn't Die from 58. That's an interesting selection. Thing That Wouldn't Die, did that ever get a DVD release? I don't know. I have resisted those Universal sets because I have all the films, but that Wild Woman one, it's got the trilogy. I only have the movies on VHS and MP4, so I'm gonna have to bite the bullet eventually and get the DVD set of that, because that's, although those movies are not great, it's nice to see that they're finally getting a little love that they really haven't gotten before. I'm not even sure, did all three of those come out on VHS back in the day? I don't know. I know that obviously two of them did, Maybe the other one did and I just never got it. 
for August birthdays, Richard, we have a director's edition, a special director's edition. All of these birthdays are directors. Huh. August 10th of 1902, Kurt Siodmak. You say, wait, Kurt Siodmak was a writer. And yes, he wrote a lot of great movies, but he also directed nine films, including Bride of the Gorilla from 1951, which, speaking of Derek and Monster Kid Radio, covered that a couple weeks ago. August 13th, 1899, Alfred Hitchcock. Richard, putting you on the spot real quick, what is your favorite Hitchcock movie? Oh my gosh. You know, I really love Rear Window. I love Jimmy Stewart, and so I love any of the movies that he did, but that movie, for some reason, I mean, I, I love Psycho, everyone says Psycho. I, I, I'd go with, I'd go with Rear Window. All right. What about you? I'm everyone, I guess, because Psycho. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just curious. The, one of my friends had posted a, a thing uh, maybe last month about favorite Hitchcock movie. August 18th, 1933, Roman Polanski, controversial director, but his movie The Tenant has just come out from Shout Factory on Blu-ray, July 28th, that came out. And finally, August 29th, 1935, William Friedkin, director of The Exorcist, has a book, a couple years old, but my brother gave it to me. I, it's on the pile to read. It's called The Friedkin Connection, a memoir. So uh, an autobiography, I guess, about William Friedkin. Speaking of The Exorcist, have you ever seen Beyond the Door? I don't think so. It just got added to Shudder. Hmm. And I watched the trailer last night, because when they add a movie, they have the trailer sometimes attached with it. They just blatantly are robbing the tubular bells at the very beginning. It's like somebody's version of it, but it is so similar. You know, there, there's no shame whatsoever. They're clearly capitalizing on that. That movie actually looks kind of terrifying. That movie's been, always been on my radar, but it's never been something I could easily press play and watch, and I never bought the Blu-ray or DVD, but uh, yeah, it's on Shutter, so. Hmm. Is that the anyway. one with Juliet? Yeah, that's the one with Juliet Mills. Yes. Nanny and the Professor. Oh, wow. Yes. Right. I love that. I love that. That's, now we're going on a side, 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 side tangent when we start talking Nanny and the Professor. <laughs> Let's do a podcast about Nanny and the Professor. Absolutely. I, you know, I love Richard Long as an actor. I loved him in Big Valley, and he was in that. And that, I think, was made like right before he had his heart attack. He died very, very young, hmm. unfortunately. For August anniversaries of movies released, I'm doing a shameless plug edition. These are all movies that I have recently written about on my blog, classichorrors.club. On August 10th of 1960, Dinosaurus was released. August 22nd, 1961, Scream of Fear. I didn't necessarily write about that recently. However, I wrote about a TV movie called A Taste of Evil, which used the same script that Jimmy Sangster used for Hammer's Scream of Fear. Very interesting. August 25th, 1957, From Hell It Came. Not necessarily earth-shattering news, but it was the first time I had seen that and I really enjoyed it. And then finally, August 26th, 1953, War of the Worlds. We may have talked last time about the Criterion half-price sale and that coming out the same week, and a lot of people were rounding that up. I did, but not only did I round it up, I actually watched it. It didn't sit wrapped for two years before I opened it. Now's the time for our favorite feature. What's up with Richard? What is going on in your creative endeavors? Oh, gosh. So we're still 
and experiencing our summer with Stan and Ollie, which again is not horror related or anything, but still uh, enjoying Laurel and Hardy and all the films Laurel and Hardy related. In August, we are starting to enter the final phase of their career. We're, we're up to circa 1940. They're wrapping up their career with Hal Roach and getting ready to do their career with 20th Century Fox. And so they're older, they're kind of rehashing some of their old gags and stuff. We'll keep on going all the way through, gosh, the very end of September. We'll wrap it up with the very last movie. And actually, I think the very last thing I'll post is probably a repost of the Stan and Ollie movie from a couple years ago, uh, very, very late 2018, which was an excellent film and a good way to kind of wrap it up. Beyond that, I've got some reviews pending over at Dread Media. Recently did reviews on Monstrum, which is a really cool uh, South Korean flick from 2018. It's on Shudder, which I recommend. Scare Package, which is uh, also a new horror anthology, which is a lot of fun. And Hogzilla, which I'm not sure that I can recommend Hogzilla, but uh, those will be coming up soon on uh, Dread Media. Over at the Mimiverse, this month of August, I did Wild Women of Wongo and the She-Gods of Shark Reef, otherwise known as the double feature that nearly broke Carla. <laughs> I gotta admit, Wild Women of Wongo, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. As I jokingly said, when the parrot is the best thing about the movie, then you know you're in trouble. That's Carla said the same thing. You can hear that over at the August edition of the Kansas City Crypt. Yeah, over at the blog, I, you know, not really much planned horror-related for the month of August. Kind of just doing the Laurel and Hardy stuff right now before we start to get to the Halloween season. Although I did get some films recently that I might do some one-off reviews. I, I got my uh, my stack of films from Severin Films that I ordered during their sale. Some random films that, that I might uh, I might cover. The Uncanny with Peter Cushing. I got a good copy of that. Horror of Party Beach. There we go. That was another one that I picked up. I wanted to get the Horrors of Spider Island, but I'm going to wait till I could get that on the 50% off. So that'll probably be later this year. Yeah, I may do some random one-offs on that. And still doing my OTR Wednesdays. Speaking of Hitchcock doing nothing but Hitchcock right now. Hitchcock adaptations, and that'll go on into early September. And then I'll do a couple weeks where I'll do some Laurel and Hardy stuff, and then then we're into October and 31 days of Halloween, and we'll talk about that next month. What about you? Yeah, so I'm kind of busy on the writing front. I've got some deadlines coming up. I've got to really hunker down. First of all, the, the Spotlight on Horror book is going to press. And if you've pre-ordered it, you'll be getting it soon. You can order it. I'll, there'll be a link in the show notes. I have several pieces in there. The next book from them will be Giant Monsters of Filmland. And I'm supposed to have, I think I'm doing five for that in by uh, October 1st. So I've got to get busy on that. And then uh, We Belong Dead number 22 is out now. I've got nothing in there, but I'm doing something for number 23 about the Universal Edgar Allan Poe movies. So I've got a September 1st deadline for that. I've really got to get busy after I get this podcast out. 
Uh, I did also want to mention that if any of you read We Belong Dead, it's going to attempt some type of a regular publication schedule and they want to have a letters column. So if any of you have read that or if you want to maybe write and say you want to see more articles by Jeff Owens, you can email wbdmagazine at yahoo.co.uk and they're going to try to start up a letters column and have that magazine come out more frequently. That is what I'm focused on, as well as, and this is going to lead into our what are we doing next time, I realized we are approaching our 50th episode. And to me, that is a landmark. Richard and I have a lot of ideas. We want to culminate with a 50th episode on Halloween, for Halloween. I don't know that it'll come out on Halloween day. Some ideas, some fun new things to do for that. But that means we've got to, if you do your math, we there's not enough time to get to episode 50. So we're not going to be like DC Comics and just arbitrarily renumber, but we are going to squeeze in three additional episodes before episode 50. Rich, why don't you tell us what we're doing in September with our two episodes? All right, we've had a lot of fun all summer long doing our trips to the drive-in, and we thought we're going to continue to do something a little different. We like this kind of string up the format, and that's not to say we're going to continue something every single month, but you know what? After a summer at the drive-in, back in the day, it's September, and if you were like Jeff and I, that fall preview edition of the TV Guide, that was almost like a Bible when you got that. I would get that when we were, we wouldn't always get TV Guide, but when we did, I would hang on to that thing, and I wish I still had my old copies of it. I kept those for years, but I don't have them anymore. That told you all the cool new shows coming out, and when your favorite shows were going to be premiering. Since Jeff has been doing made-for-television movies over at his site, I thought, what a perfect way to tie in. And so next month, you're getting a double dose of the Classic Horrors Club. We're going to be doing two episodes, one probably, say, the first week of, of the month, and maybe the second one will be the third week, roughly, give or take. And uh, we're going to be doing two movies in each episode. So we're not going to tell you what we're doing in the latter half. We'll leave you in suspense. But in our very next episode, our double feature of made-for-TV movies is going to be When Michael Calls from 1973, I believe, and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I believe also came from 73, I think. When Michael Calls was 72, but... Okay, see, there we go. So, early 70s. If you didn't think I was going to get a Star Trek reference in, I'm sneaking it in. I had one for Space Amoeba, and I forgot to tell you. But oh, what, what was it? Go ahead, go ahead. What was it? Well, this is stretching it, but I'm always thinking about you. One of the actresses in Space Amoeba, she played that native girl, uh, Saki, is named Yukiko Kabayashi. Ah, uh, that sounds right, yes. And so, in the Star Trek universe... Oh, yes. Maru. Okay, that was a stretch, but I'll take it. Yes. I'll take it. So, so, so what's yours? Well, okay, this one is, has nothing to do with the movies we did, but with the movies we're going to do. Well, because... Don't you want to save it then till then, or do you want to do it now? I'll do it twice next. I'll do it then. Oh, right, I'll, well. I'll cheat. I'll give you two Star Trek references, but you have to give up a Doctor Who reference. Do I? <laughs> All right, there we go. That's my Doctor Who reference for the day. 
I couldn't, there was nothing. Sorry, no Doctor Who references here. But next month, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark stars Kim Darby, who starred in a classic Star Trek episode from the first season, Miri, where all the adults have died and the children are alive, but as they enter adolescence, or not adolescence, as enter puberty, puberty, adolescence, young adulthood, I don't know. When things start happening in their body, they start to get the disease as well. <laughs> that's my Star Trek reference for this time. I love that movie, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, and that's a fun one. And it is available on Blu-ray, and I've got it on a bootleg DVD, so the question is, is Richard going to bite the bullet and upgrade to Blu-ray? Very possibly, because I love that movie. That's what we're doing in our first episode next month, and then we've got some fun stuff lined up for the, the second, and then as you mentioned, we got to get to episode 50, so we're going to have two episodes in October. I don't want to give too much away about those October episodes, but I, I watched the Facebook group page, but I do want to say that we have a special guest for episode 49 and a special theme. We'll kind of be off, I think, format for that probably. I think we'll put it out there because I'm anticipating hopefully getting some certain type of feedback for that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, anyway. And then definitely episode 50, our, our extravaganza celebration for Halloween. Definitely we'll be seeking participation for that. We'd really like people to contribute in whatever way they can. And we'll iron that out and get some special details on that. So until then, we we haven't crossed the, the time travel line yet. We're still in the 70s. So I'm going to put in this eight track tape and play this really cool song I found. That's gonna start, we got any uh, goodbyes before I do that? My only thing is uh, hoping everybody is uh, staying well and staying safe. That's, I think we'll just, you know, that's my final words is I hope everyone's taking care of themselves and. We're in that phase at work now where we've been gone so long, we're like re-emphasizing how important it is to stay in touch and do unique things to stay in touch. So I'll just echo that and, and like Richard said, hope everything is going well. We'll see you next time. Here is the song. It is called Space Amoeba, and it's by a group called Rack, or Rock, R-A-K, from the 2017 album Kaiju Tape, available on Apple Music. And you got that on 8-track, no less. That's pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, it came out in 17. Oh, well, <laughs> didn't think that one through, but anyway, it's a rock awesome. song, so let's hear it. Mm-hmm.